welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12, through 12, New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and today on Anchored by Truth, we are continuing our latest study series brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We've labeled this series, but what about? Because a lot of times, that's how questions about the Christian faith start. So, we've noted before, Christianity is a faith that is firmly rooted in place and time. But that doesn't mean that Christianity doesn't have a supernatural dimension. It does. So often when people encounter the supernatural aspect of the Christian faith, they will ask questions like, but what about angels and demons? Or, but what about heaven and hell? These are usually subjects that are familiar to most people, but which are actually poorly understood. So, we wanted to do individual episodes on several of these subjects to see what the Bible actually has to say about them. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., why did you decide we should do this What About series? Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. Thank you for joining us here today. As you just mentioned, there are a lot of subjects that pertain to the Christian faith where sometimes the knowledge about them in our culture, I consider it a mile wide but an inch deep. And sometimes I think there's more misinformation that circulates around some of these subjects than actual information. And much of the confusion can be directly traced back to a lack of biblical literacy in our culture. That's the bad news. The good news is that most of the confusion can be eliminated simply by everyone going back to the Bible to see what it has to say. You know, reading the Bible will not only clarify our views on the supernatural elements of Christianity, but reading the Bible is also an excellent cure for a vast variety of the ills that confront our faith in society. That's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from other religions. Christianity is comfortable both in the here and now. But Christianity is also comfortable in the realms that can't be perceived by our five senses. A lot of people would like to deny that those realms exist, but we all know that they do. As the Nicene Creed states, quote, We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, unquote. Yes, as Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through verse 20 says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful wicked people, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. 
so they have no excuse for not knowing God. That's from the New Living Translation. The contemporary English version has that same section as, quote, God's eternal power and character cannot be seen, but from the beginning of creation, God has shown what these are like by all that he has made. That's why those people don't have an excuse, unquote. So the point the Apostle Paul is making here is that absolutely everyone knows that God exists. So when people try to deny that truth, they have to suppress or crush that truth. But the verses that we just heard also say that God cannot be perceived directly with our five senses. God is a supernatural being. In fact, God is the ultimate supernatural being. So as Christians, we affirm both the existence of the natural universe, the universe that we can see with our eyes, hear with our ears, and perceive with our other senses. But as Christians, we also affirm the existence of an unseen realm by applying logic and evidence to what we can see to the empirical observations that we get from the natural world. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that the universe cannot be all that exists because the universe has a finite lifespan, finite in the past, finite in the future. So it cannot exist eternally to the past and eternally to the future. So our empirical observations of the visible universe tell us that the universe has to have a cause greater than itself outside of itself. A simple way of stating that dilemma is that The universe cannot explain its own origin or existence, but the existence of an eternal, personal, creative being can explain the origin and existence of the universe. That's what the verse from Romans means. We can know about God's power and character by applying the logic and intelligence God has given us to the grandeur we see about us. Yes. And by applying logic and intelligence, we can also determine that the Bible is God's special revelation to people. And part of that special revelation that has been given to us in the Bible tells us that there is an unseen supernatural realm and that that supernatural realm contains beings other than just God. Such as angels and demons. Right. We know from the Bible that God has created two categories of intelligent, personal beings, men and angels. We also know that these two categories have some things in common, but also that they are vastly different. Well, before we move on to that part of the discussion, let's just be precise on one point. You said the Bible tells us that God has created two categories of intelligent, personal beings, men and angels. I'm sure some people wonder whether God could have created other categories of such beings. Well, God certainly could have, but we have no evidence that he did. When it comes to contemplating the supernatural aspects of the created order, some speculation is probably inevitable. But the danger in speculating is that we become so enamored with our speculations that we lose sight of what we do know or can know to be true. Now, provided we're solidly grounded in the truth, exercising what John Gerstner used to call our sanctified imaginations can help us think through questions very thoroughly. But we always need to be sure that we don't invest our trust in anything that is the product of those imaginations. You know, when I see the titles of a lot of books, either online or in the bookstores, and I've read a couple of them, it's pretty obvious that many writers have elevated the products of their own imagination 
over the very real realms that have been made by the real Creator. I think that's a good caution to keep in mind. So today, we want to begin our look at angels. As we've already noted, angels are one of the two categories of intelligent, personal beings that the Bible discusses. What else do we know about angels? For instance, when were angels created? And that's a very good question. And there's not universal agreements among scholars as to when angels were created. Some scholars believe that the angels were created at the same time that God created everything else. For instance, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, in his monumental commentary on Genesis, which is entitled The Genesis Account, says that whenever the words heavens and earth are linked together in the Old Testament, like they are in the first line of the book of Genesis, that this is a figure of speech called a merism. A merism is a figure of speech in which two opposites are joined together into an all-encompassing whole. We do the same thing in English when we say things like the store is open day and night. We don't mean the store is open when it's bright, sunshine, or dark. We mean the store is open all the time. Other merisms include searched high and low, or we checked near and far. Yes. So Dr. Sarfati's point is that Genesis 1-1, which says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, That includes both the creation of the visible and the invisible realms, both the physical and the non-physical. But there are other scholars who believe that the angels were in fact created before the physical creation was. And some of those scholars point to Job chapter 38 verses 4 through 7 as support for this view. Those verses are where God is confronting Job and pointing out the limits of Job's knowledge. God says to Job, quote, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? That's from the New Living Translation. Right. Now, it's pretty obvious that if the angels shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth, The angels had to already be in existence at that time. But there are many scholars who believe that Job 38, 4-7, that that's just a poetic expression and that it's not meant to be taken literally. So the question of when angels were created is a bit of an open question. But it is clear that angels were in existence either before man or they came into existence no later than man. Some commentators see angels as being created at the same time as the heavens and earth were created, which was on day one, but God may have created them, for instance, very early on day one, very early on the first day, and if so, well, then those angels would still have been around to see the rest of creation, including the creation of man on day six, because don't forget, man was not created in in the created order until day six, so Even if the angels were created at the same time as the heavens and the earth, they still would have seen the five first days of creation, or at least portion of the first day and the rest of day two through five, before man was created on day six. So there's not agreement on the exact time the angels were created, but there is agreement that the angels all possessed some form of free will and that they were initially created, like man, in a probationary status. After all, demons are just fallen angels. The demons obviously elected to use their freedom to choose in an unholy way, 
and rebel against God. In effect, they violated their probation. As a consequence, they were expelled from their original place in heaven. But the holy angels didn't misuse their freedom. The holy angels remained faithful and loyal to their Creator. Yes. So let's make a couple of other observations at this point. Angels, when they were created, were created in a fully mature, developed state. Now, ordinarily, angels don't have a physical presence, although obviously we can see from the Bible that at some time, some angels do take on some form of a corporeal structure. Now, since angels were created fully developed, there was no need for angels to grow up. The angels were formed in their final state. And that would mean that upon their creation, the angels were fully able to exercise any capabilities they possess. Well, as you have observed, the fallen angels used their free will to rebel against God, and the holy angels used their free will to be obedient to God. Well, after those angels made those choices, God has affirmed those choices by allowing each group to retain that status that they chose for the rest of eternity. The New Geneva Study Bible puts it this way for the holy angels, quote, The many who pass their probationary tests are now evidently confirmed in a state of holiness and immortal glory. Heaven is their dwelling place, where they constantly worship God, and from where they go out at God's command to render service to Christians, unquote. So, just as the holy angels are confirmed in a state of permanent holiness, The unholy angels are confirmed in a state of permanent damnation. Both groups of angels, though, apparently have an intense interest in what happens on the earth, especially what happens with Christians. One aspect of the angels' personality, apparently, is curiosity. So, as we heard in our opening quotation, which was 1 Peter 1.12, 1 Peter 1.12 says that even the angels long to look into the things that pertain to salvation and the gospel. So, like people, angels are personal, intelligent beings. But unlike people, angels ordinarily exist as spirits, not as beings of flesh and blood. The fact that angels are not physical in their nature also implies that angels don't age or die like human beings do. Jesus confirmed this in his exchange with the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12, when he said that after the resurrection, people are like the angels— and don't marry, and aren't given in marriage. Now, it's important to note that in that passage, that Jesus said that after the resurrection, believers will be like the angels in certain respects. Jesus did not say that believers became angels. The idea that believers are transformed into angels after death is an idea that's contained in books and movies, but it's completely unbiblical. Great point. You know, no matter how charming It's a Wonderful Life is as a movie or many other stories that contain that same theme, no matter what those stories say, we know from the Bible, human beings and angels are completely different types, completely different orders of created beings. People will always be people. Now, we might be people who live in heaven, who will have glorified bodies. That's the same kind of body that Jesus had when he came out of the tomb. Or, sadly... There will be some people who will live in hell. They'll still be people in hell, and they will suffer for all eternity, but they will always be people. People are not going to become angels. Angels don't turn into people, no matter what Hollywood or what the various books or podcasts say. 
that an idea that people after they die become angels is, it may be charming in certain instances, but it is simply unbiblical. Of course, there's no need for anyone to suffer in hell, especially not anyone who is listening to Anchored by Truth. All anyone has to do is turn to Jesus, acknowledge they have sinned, and ask Jesus to save them. Jesus saves everyone who asks him to, and there's nothing Jesus wants more than to save everyone with a salvation that is full and free. Another great point. We certainly hope and pray that anyone listening to this program who has not already trusted in Jesus to be their Savior will immediately turn to him. You know, none of us are guaranteed another hour, much less another day or year or decade. The time to be saved is always now. At any rate, people will always be people, and angels will always be angels, regardless of whether the angels, or the people for that matter, are fallen or unfallen. But it is true that at certain times, and for certain reasons, angels, as described in the Bible, have been able to take on the appearance of being human. Now, they don't turn into human beings, they just take on the appearance of being human. And so that's possibly where some of the confusion about humans becoming angels or angels becoming human may have arisen. Well, before we get into specific instances of what angels did in the Bible, are there any other things we should note about what angels are? Thus far, we've seen that angels are the second category of created beings that are intelligent and personal. We've seen that angels were fully formed and mature upon their creation. Hopefully people understand that that means angels don't age and angels don't die. In that respect, the only two people that were created like that were Adam and Eve. They were created as fully mature adults. But every other person has had to undergo a maturation process. That's true for all higher order species of plants and animals on earth. To paraphrase an old observation, even the mighty oak starts out as an acorn. Right. But angels don't. And as we've mentioned, ordinarily angels do not have a corporeal presence, so there's no need for the angels to mature physically. And ordinarily the angels are intangible and unseen. But this apparently does not mean that the physical parameters of our universe do not have some impact on the activities of angels. For instance, in Daniel chapter 10, we have the famous episode of an angel being sent by God to provide an answer to Daniel's prayer. But the angel did not arrive instantaneously. Apparently, there was some travel involved for the angel to move from where God gave him his instructions to where Daniel was. Daniel, chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 says, Then the angel said, Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. But for twenty-one days the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. So that tells us that the angel did not just pop instantaneously from one location to another. Apparently there's no teleportation or beaming in the angelic realm. Apparently not. But we have no way of knowing in what manner or at what speeds angels move in their realm or how the angels' movement in the unseen realm relates to time and distance in our universe. And so here's a place where a bit of sanctified speculation seems to indicate that angels aren't likely confined by the laws of physics in either their realm or ours. 
So the speed limits that affect travel in our universe, for instance, by physical creatures or physical objects, probably don't affect travel in the angelic realm, and they probably don't affect the travel of angels as they move about the universe. Angels can probably cross distances in time frames that would make all of us dizzy, but that still doesn't mean that those angels are completely immune to all of the constructs of the physical creation. And our verse from Daniel shows us something else. It seems that there is a hierarchical system within the angelic realm. The messenger sent to Daniel was blocked by the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia until Michael, one of the archangels, came to help him. That would seem to indicate that the spirit prince of Persia had more power than the messenger, but not as much power as Michael. Do we know how many levels there are in the hierarchy? Not really. Some commentators think that Paul, when he was writing his epistles, referred to the ranks of angels when he used the terms principalities, powers, thrones, dominions. Now, when Paul used those, he occasionally used them in a good sense, such as in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where he said that all things were created through Christ and unto him. But in most of the other passages in which Paul used those terms, those terms seem to represent evil. They seem to represent evil powers. Some commentators think that those terms that Paul is using there, principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, means that Paul is classifying angels according to a hierarchy, but we can't be absolutely certain about that. Other than knowing for sure that Michael is referred to as either an archangel or a chief prince, we really don't have any solid information as to how the angelic hierarchies are ordered. But it does seem very clear from Scripture that there are hierarchies among the angelic realm and that the angels themselves have to respect those hierarchies. So this is probably a good time to make another note for today about the angelic realm. There are apparently various types or groups of angels, but we are given titles for only two of those in the Bible, the seraphim and the cherubim. There are over 60 references in the Bible to cherubs or cherubim, but only two references to seraphim. The term seraphim means burning or glowing. The only references to seraphim are in Isaiah chapter 6, where they are said to be around the throne of God. They have six wings. They fly with two and use two wings to cover their feet and to cover their faces. Covering their feet is a display of modesty, and apparently they cover their faces because even the holy angels cannot bear to gaze into the refulgent glory of God Almighty. And that's a great lesson for us. You know, God is so magnificent that even these powerful angels, angels are way more powerful, way more wonderful, if you will, than human beings are. But even these powerful, wonderful angels, they're awed and intimidated by the presence of God. But this awe and intimidation does not drive the angels away from God. The angels choose to remain in his presence. They just remain there in a posture of perpetual worship. And so when we approach God ourselves in our own times of prayer and reading the Bible, we should be just as reverent and respectful of God's absolute holiness as the angels are. So the only reference in Scripture to seraphim mentions them as being in the immediate presence of God. Well, by contrast, the cherubim, and cherubim is just the plural of cherub, seem to be an order of angels that have been tasked with either representing God on this earth or performing missions for God on this earth. 
The first mention of a cherub in the Bible, or the cherubim in the Bible, is actually when a cherub or cherubim were placed outside the Garden of Eden to act as guards and to keep man from re-entering the Garden of Eden. But cherubim are mentioned in many other places as well, and cherubim adorned the mercy seat, which was the top of the famous Ark of the Covenant. One of the most amazing appearances of cherubim is in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10 where their appearance is described as a creature with four wings, four faces, human hands, but straight legs that ended in calf-like hooves, and they were shining and glowing. It's hard to know what to make of an appearance like that. Yes, it is. Especially since the cherubim that adorned the mercy seat didn't look anything like the cherubim that were described in Ezekiel chapter 1 and later named in Ezekiel chapter 10. Now, many commentators have offered explanations for why the cherubim in Ezekiel had that bizarre appearance. Now, I want to emphasize that means bizarre to our eyes. You know, how cherubim appear in their ordinary existence, how they appear in the unseen realm. We can read the biblical description, and that biblical description may be somewhat bizarre to us, but that's being bizarre to our eyes. We don't have any idea whether that's perfectly normal in the unseen spiritual realm. It may very well be. We don't have any idea what the standards for appearance are, if there are any standards for appearance, in the unseen realm. But I don't want to get too diverted by the question of how the cherubim in Ezekiel looked. I don't want to get too diverted by that right now. I think that the major point is that angels can seem to appear in various guises, and those guises, well, they seem to be well-suited for the occasion. So, as in Ezekiel, when those angels were accompanying a manifestation of the Lord, those angels are given an appearance that staggers the mind. Well, God himself staggers the mind. So the angels seem to always be garbed in a guise that is suitable for whatever occasion or whatever task they've been given to perform. And since angels ordinarily do not possess physicality, it's probably best not to try to press them into a specific mold the way the appearances of our creatures work on our world. On our world, when a creature is in its body, that shape, that morphology, if you will, well, that pretty well defines that creature at that time. And that's one of the ways we distinguish creatures on this earth. But I'm not sure it's a good idea to start trying to translate what happens on our earth into the unseen realm and start trying to press the appearance of the angels as they're described, even in certain instances, I'm not sure it's a good idea to try to make that or try to imply that that means anything about how the angels may appear when they're in their normal state. Well, today we spent most of our time talking about the nature and characteristics of angels. In our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to talk about what angels do, or at least what they did, in the Bible. The goal of this discussion is to help people see that the Bible is consistent throughout its entire text, even though that text was compiled over a period of 1,500 years. That remarkable unity of the Bible is evidence of the Bible's own supernatural point of origin. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal Sea Books' offerings, the book Purposeful Prayers. Today, let's pray a prayer for our Christian brothers and sisters who live in lands where they are subject to hostility, oppression, or even death just for believing in Jesus as their Savior. Prayer for Persecuted Christians Father of comfort and deliverance, you are a merciful God 
and you have abundant compassion for those who suffer and are afflicted. Lord, we come to you to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who are being oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, and killed because they belong to you. We grieve for them and we cry out to you on their behalf. We know that you will never leave or forsake any of your children and that you know their sorrows better than we will ever know them. Yet we cannot remain silent and so we plead with you to grant healing and release for them all. Help us to know what we can do to be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves and give us wisdom to know how we can help them. Help us to be generous with financial support, persistent in prayer, and committed to their cause. Cause our national leaders to act to improve their lot in accordance with your will. Raise up leaders who are willing to stand for you without compromise or flinching. We pray that you would cause the release and delivery of those whom you would have delivered. For those who remain in suffering, be a powerful presence in their lives. Grant them the peace that can only come from your special touch. We long for the day when all your people will stand united at your feet and where the tribulations of this world will be far behind. We and all your people pray, now and always, only in Christ's holy name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.